music, sit in silence for a few uh, minutes, and then come back and get into our verse-by-verse -verse study. Lord, we uh, thank you for life. We thank you for all the blessings you pour out upon us uh, every minute of every day. You keep our hearts beating and our uh, eyes seeing, our ears hearing. You keep us safe in our travels. You watch over our family. But you also, uh, being a good God, have to allow things to happen, and you're there to, to reach out and comfort us when they do. So we pray that we will increase our faith in you as we uh, move forward in this walk, that when things are uh, going really well, we look to you and thank you, and when they are uh, falling apart, we look to you in and, and, uh, and, and faith and hope and trusting that you will step in and... Uh, and take our hand and move us through. We pray for your spirit to be with us in abundance as we consider your word and the message that uh, is in it, and uh, so that we can exit from this building and move out into our lives as Christians, loving others, uh, dying to self, and being the type of children you want us to be, Lord. So we pray for this now as we uh, hear your word set to music. In Jesus' name, amen.
Okay, uh, Paul has been in the past few weeks describing the trials he's gone through as an apostle. And we left off with him saying, I write not these things at verse 14 to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, he says, I have begotten you through the gospel. And that last line was a biggie. It opened us up to a discussion about begatting people through words. And we talked about the words being truth and light. We had this diagram on the board. And uh, all being interchangeable through scripture with God and the word and Jesus. Light, love, the word, all interchangeable. And then he tells believers, after saying he's his spirit, there he spiritually begat them as a father. He gets even more bold in his message, and he says at verse 16, Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Okay? So we've talked a lot about, you know, we go directly to God through Christ. There's no intermediary. And here we have Paul saying, listen, I'm telling you, be followers of me. And then he goes on at verse 17 through the end of the chapter. For this cause I sent unto you Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye, that I shall come to you with a rod, or in love, or in the spirit of weakness? And that rounds the chapter out. And so jump with me back to verse 16. He says, Wherefore, as since I've begotten you as a father in the faith, through the preaching of the word of the gospel, 
He says, I beseech you, be followers of me. We're going to ask, how come he doesn't say, wherefore, follow Christ? He interjects himself in there, and that's a big question. How come he doesn't say, wherefore, be followers of Jesus? Why do we need Paul inserting himself? The wherefore, of course, is a therefore, meaning I have told you that I've begotten you through the preaching of the gospel. Wherefore, therefore, be followers of me. The Greek word that is translated to followers here in the King James is uh, mimetes, and you can tell that we get the English word mimic here. He's saying imitate him, mimic him as the one who begat them through the gospel. Uh, that's a really bold thing to suggest. I want you to imitate me. The believers at Corinth, you know, we've gone over it so many times, had a disposition to break up into groups. Some was of Apollos, some were of Peter, some were of Jim, John, Jack, Paul, Jesus even. There's all these different factions. And uh, he, he's telling them you need to come together and be one under this. And uh, you, you can't just break up. Someone who really loves Jesus and follows Jesus isn't going to separate from someone who was brought into the faith by Peter. Be united here. And so Paul seems to be telling them, listen, uh, you have a disposition, disposition to break into groups. He says, now follow me, mimic me. And I think this is a reasonable request on the part of Paul. Why? He was called by Jesus. He was trained by Jesus three years in the Sinai, Peninsula, Sinai Desert, maybe more. And uh, he was called especially as a special apostle to preach, teach, suffer, and die. He was called to die. He says that in scripture. They were called to die for the cause of Christ. So imitate him, mimic and follow him, while bold, was a reasonable request, but it is one of really incomprehensible responsibility when you think about it. Uh, I realize that most people today believe that all pastors and preachers ought to be able to say the same thing. Well, Paul said it, so pastors should say it too. Follow me. No, 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 no. There's a big difference uh, between Paul and a common elder or a common pastor in a church. Paul was very, very unique, and so were Peter, James, John, and all the other apostles. Very, very unique in Scripture. By the way, this is not the only time Paul says, follow me. In fact, let me give you some other references. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul is going to write again, Be ye followers of me, but he adds, even as I am of Christ. So we take all of Scripture to understand. We don't just take where Paul says, be followers of me, and say, that's it. We look to the whole Scripture to say, where else has he spoken of that, and what does he mean? Other parts uh, help us make sense. In Philippians 3, 17 through 19, he says, Brethren, be followers together of me. Mark them which walk, so as you have an example. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, who are now even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, he fleshes the idea of following him more, he says, and you became followers of me and of the Lord. So now we have context when he says, be followers of me. He's saying, be followers of me and the Lord. That's always tacitly implied here by Paul when he writes this. 
having received the word much in affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Then finally, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9, Paul says something super interesting. And it's a point that I use when I talk to pastors in the Valley of Utah, especially about uh, not uh, encumbering their congregates uh, with financial burdens, like the use of tithes or a constant passing of plates and a focus on gathering of money. Their justification is Paul has said in another place, uh, it's permissible for those who uh, live teaching the faith to live off the proceeds of the faith. And because Paul has said that, we're justified in doing it. And I always turn to uh, 2 Thessalonians 3. Listen to what Paul says. He says, for yourselves know how you ought to follow us. So again, there's the message. He says, follow us. Now listen, for you have be, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Follow us for that reason. He says, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail day and night that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Now listen to this. He says, not because we don't have the power, means not that we don't have the right to partake of what you uh, are giving to the church. Not that we don't have that right, but listen, he says, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. So while Paul says in one place, yes, it's justifiable for those who are in the faith to live of the faith, he says here in 2 Thessalonians 3, follow us and look at us. We weren't disorderly. We, we uh, didn't eat any man's bread. We didn't take from your table and tithes, give of your corn harvest, give of your wine, give of this so that we can live off it like the Levite priest did. He says, it's not that we don't have the power to do it, but we've made ourselves an example for you to follow in this. You see, and I use that with, with uh, some pastors when we sit and talk about this topic. So I love this, uh, having told them to follow him here in 1 Corinthians, because he's proving I'm worthy of being followed in Christ's name. That's, that's essentially what he's saying. Sacrificing myself for the cause. I don't think other men today and women are capable of that worthiness. I don't think that we can live up to it. He was especially called dispensation for the church in that day. And so I don't think bishops and pastors and reverends and such can stand up to that high, high standard. Uh, maybe on a Sunday, it's possible. Uh, perhaps a couple days during the week. But in the end, men and women today will let you down. I don't think these apostles in the name of Christ Jesus Church could let them down. I think God was so strongly with them that they were able to make this claim. Um, be disappointed if you, if you kind of go the other way. Um, it doesn't mean that leaders of the faith shouldn't try to set the example and be the leaders, uh, but uh, I'm just emphasizing that we have a, sh a shepherd. We don't need sub-shepherds. They needed sub-shepherds in that day through the apostles because of what was happening. He was gathering his church. They had a special power to do it. So uh, here in 1 Corinthians, we discover a built-in difference between following Paul and following any of these other false teachers that are present. And um, Paul was deserving of being followed in Christ. The false teachers were not. So he was not creating another group to divide within the group at Corinth. He was saying, let's all come together, 
follow me, I'm following Christ, let's unify and stop these divisions of other men who are trying to get you to follow them. After he tells them to mimic him, he adds in verse 17, for this cause I have sent unto you Timothy. To mimic me, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways. There he goes, my ways. He doesn't say Christ's ways. Which be in Christ. Notice he adds that. As I teach everywhere in every church. So since I can't get there myself, he seems to be saying, as a means to remind you of my doctrines. Why not Christ's doctrines? He adds himself in there. He says, to remind you of my doctrines in the manner of my apostolic life for Jesus, I've sent you Timothy. He will reflect to you what my teachings and doctrines are, in addition to my reflecting what Jesus' teachings are. Uh, I have sent you Timothy, the uh, fellow laborer, he is well acquainted with my views, my feelings. Timothy is my son in the faith, so I've sent him to you. So why would Paul say, follow me, uh, so many times in Scripture? Today, we have a thing, especially here a lot, we say, we follow Jesus. That's who we follow. We follow Jesus. And, and Paul is saying, um, follow me as I am following Christ. The direction means follow me as I'm in Christ. Why an intermediary here in the New Testament? Why is Paul a man inserting himself? And this has caused uh, for justification of some other groups. For instance, the, some LDS will say, well, Paul came after Jesus, and he says, follow me. So Joseph Smith came after Paul, and Joseph Smith says, follow me. So you Christians, you, you say, you know, you, you only fo we only follow Jesus. We only follow Jesus. But Paul there is telling the, the believers then to follow him. There's no problem with uh, Joseph Smith coming up and saying, now follow me. That's the justification, right? Jesus came, if you remember his words, to the house of Israel, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who he came for. Uh, when he walked the earth, now his, his work was effective for everyone. But he says, I came only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? Paul came from the house of Israel. Jesus came to the house of Israel. Paul came from the house of Israel to the Gentiles. We have an order going on here in scripture that you can see. Jesus' words and instructions were primarily to the Jews. And that's why when we read his words in the gospels and try to apply them to ourselves, it's very difficult. Very difficult to just take the gospel accounts of what Jesus is saying and understand them as applicable to Gentile life, especially today. Paul uh, were the Jews' words to Gentiles. You get it? Paul was a Jew who was... So here's Jesus sharing his words with the Jews. Here's Paul, who was a Jew, who understand this, being able to take what Jesus said and now apply it to Gentiles in a different language, in a different way. So he could capture all that Judaism was about under the law, and he could take it, called by Christ, and assign it, apply it to Gentiles. So that's why he's inserting himself. As a Jew, he knew how to follow Jesus. As a Jew, Paul knew, Jesus, I know how to follow you. Everything you say in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels, I know how to do that. But now I have to take all of that and give it to a pagan world. That's us who aren't Jews. 
back then, we don't have any under, we never had the law. We never had 1,500 years of traditions and, and, and washings and, and all this stuff. That's, I mean, we came from people who were climbing fruit trees and, and uh, worshiping idols. So he says, listen, I, as a Jew, I know how to follow Jesus. And to the Gentiles, I can explain to you what Jesus meant to the house of Israel and now to you. And uh, without Paul, I've said this before, the, the Christian message would be lost. And that is really hard for people to understand because we want to say Jesus, Jesus only. We follow, and we do. He is our Lord and Savior. He is the one. But Paul was necessary to give us the understanding of what everything Jesus did meant. Without him in that group, explaining Judaism to us as Gentiles, what we would have are essentially the Gospels, and we would have the epistles of Peter and John, perhaps Hebrews, all of it Jew-related, and we would read it as Gentiles, and we would miss the point of grace. We would miss the point of, listen, we don't repent and uh, get baptized in order to be received. We believe, and by believing, then we repent. See, that's a very different message that Paul brought to the Gentiles. We didn't have the law. There's nothing to repent to. So, This was probably written when Paul was in Ephesus. He sent Timothy to Macedonia with Erastus, and he is probably with instructions, go to Corinth. So Paul mentions in his letter to Corinth, that's why I'm sending Timothy. But uh, even though Paul wrote it, there's, there's a doubt in 1 Corinthians 16.10 that if, if he ever made it. Um, in all probability, Paul was engaged in, te- in teaching and he didn't think, I can break away, so I'm going to send uh, Timothy, who will settle the differences in the church there at Corinth on, in my, on my behalf, because Timothy understands everything I've taught. Now, this is bringing in Timothy. Who is Timothy? Well, we have Jesus, pure Jew. We have Paul, Jew of the Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, called to the Gentiles. And we have Timothy, who is an uncircumcised Greek. So we see something being passed down here. Jesus to Paul, Paul to Timothy, an uncircumcised Greek, a father who was a Greek, Lois uh, and his grandma and grandmother, faithful, but we don't know that much about them, probably Jews, a Greek father, so Greek that Timothy wasn't even circumcised when Paul met him. And so we have Paul handing now the teachings of Paul to Timothy, who he says is my son in the faith. He will come and teach you, right? So... Paul refers to Timothy as my beloved son. And this is a reference to him being begotten by Paul through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Acts 16. You read about in Acts 16 and also 1 Timothy 1-2. So quickly, Timothy is a name that means honoring God. So just to remind you, we've gone from Jesus to Paul, called Paul to the Gentiles, and now Paul has called Timothy to be his son to come to Corinth and teach them Paul's ways. Timothy's mother's name was Eunice, uh, and his grandmother, his name was, her name was Lois. And they are uh, mentioned by Paul in 2 Timothy as being women who were holy and pious. They had a great deal of influence upon Timothy. We know nothing about his father except in uh, Acts 16.1 that he was called a Greek. Uh, Timothy was first brought to our notice 
when Paul s- uh, made a second visit to Lystra, when we studied Acts, we talked about this in Acts 16.2, and it's believed that that is when he converted because of Paul's teachings. Paul uh, had a very high opinion of Timothy, and he uh, called him his own son in the faith. And he arranged that he should become his traveling companion along with many others. And then Paul took and circumcised Timothy, which is fascinating because it, we also read the paradoxical passages where Paul says, if you are, get circumcised, it doesn't do anything for you. In fact, circumcision is unnecessary. And then to, to add to the complexity, he goes and he circumcises Timothy. Why does he do it? Because he wanted him to be in harmony with the Jews that he would be encountering, according to 1 Timothy 4.14. And then according to Acts 17, he went with Paul to different places, and then he followed him to Athens. And according to 1 Thessalonians 1.1, we find him in Corinth with Paul, and then he disappears for a few years. We pick him back up in Ephesus, according to Acts 19. He's then sent on another mission to Macedonia without Paul. So Paul is using him kind of as Timothy understands my teachings to the Gentiles. Timothy, go out as a, as a Greek kid and go out and teach. Um, when Paul was imprisoned at Rome, Timothy joined him there and apparently suffered imprisonment with him. And then during Paul's uh, second imprisonment, he wrote to Timothy and he said, Hey, listen, go and get my coat and my scriptures uh, and bring them to me And uh, when I'm... Uh, in Troas. Go to Troas and get those things. So according to tradition, after the apostles' uh, death, Timothy settled in Ephesus, and it is believed he stayed in Ephesus, and he was martyred there. That's what uh, church history, however reliable that is, says he was martyred. So uh, there Paul describes him as faithful in the Lord uh, here in, in 1 Corinthians, and tells the people at Corinth that he would bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. As I teach everywhere in every church. We can see the power of an apostolic hand on the early church. No doubt they were setting the teaching. They were telling people what to do, what to look for. And it goes all the way to the book of Revelation. It's the apostles who had their hand on that early church, leading, setting up elders, calling other people like Timothy to go and work. The last line seems to indicate, as I teach everywhere in every church, that Paul was consistent in his teachings. Whatever they may be, he says, Timothy is going to bring to remembrance everything I teach everywhere in every church, meaning it's the same message. There's no variation. He had the truth down, right? At verse 18, Paul now addresses the situation of the false teachers, and he has said he was sending Timothy to represent him, and now at verse 18 he says, Now, some are puffed up uh, as though I might not come to you. Um, what he's saying here is apparently there were some in Corinth, false teachers, who in pride were saying things like, Paul will never show up here himself. He won't come here and face us and our magnificent philosophies that we're sharing here in Corinth. He's a coward. And, and perhaps they were saying, he's going to send, send little Timothy there to speak his words, but he won't come. So that's why he says, now some are puffed up as though I won't come to you. Um, But then he adds at verse 19, and he says something really important. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, 
and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. Okay? That's a really big passage. Uh, bold statement. I am going to show up there. Believe you me. And if the Lord is willing, I'm going to come. And I will examine. Uh, in the Greek, uh, it's I will examine. He says, I will know here in the King James. And I will know means I'm going to examine. Listen to what he says. I'll investigate myself, not the speech of them who are puffed up, but the power. Not the speech, but the power. Remember, the church at Corinth was broken up through all the words and all the stuff. He says, I'm not going to come and debate with you on your philosophy. And I'm, not, I'm just going to talk to you about the power. I'm going to examine you by the power of the words that you're sharing. Where's the power, dunamis, behind your words? Uh, I like the way, the, Paul, uh, the way Paul couches his words here. He is not determined to do anything but what the Lord allows. That's how he starts it off. So we see his heart. Listen, I'll come to you. I'm, not a, I'm coming if the Lord is willing. Anything else, if you think about it, is kind of uh, boastful on our part. If we make a promise, it's almost like, and it seems like a ridiculous redundancy to always say it, but to say Lord willing is pretty, a pretty good uh, addendum because if we say I'm going to be at Lagoon t- uh, Tuesday afternoon, I will be there, you know, uh, there's a chance you won't. Things happen in this life. So he couches it in that. That's why James, the brother of the Lord, he says in James 4.13, Now, go to now you that say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to a city, and will continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain. He says, Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. If the Lord will, we'll be doing this or that. Now, this is such a consistent message that James shares it, and Paul actually includes it in his writings. He says, I'm coming there if the Lord is willing. And I think it is something I want to start including more, because... It really does show a reliance upon God and, and our being in his plans and not being on our own. Some people might say oh, that's not really necessary, but I think it's something that is coming through Scripture, through all the apostles of the early church. That's how we, they would say this. And, and so uh, Paul says, if the Lord's willing, I will come and I will examine. I will put to test not your words and your speeches, you boastful teachers, but I will come and understand nothing but the power or the lack of power thereof in these teachers, uh, which I take as the power behind the message of their words. So he now adds a line after saying that, I'm going to come and test your power. That is really important. um, And it's been manipulated all over the place in the faith for centuries. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. All right? And there are several ways we have to examine that phrase. And if we don't include these examinations, we will be prone to using these little lines to justify all sorts of things that go on. 
First of all, we have to read the verse in context. Why? Of course, because to take one verse and make it a foundation is a real problem in comprehension. So Paul has been speaking against the wisdom and philosophies of these boastful men uh, from the get-go in this epistle. And that's the setting, right? There's the context. These false teachers were boasting in their philosophy and their logic and their wisdom, which Paul says the wisdom of this world means nothing. And he's gone to great length to show that their approach to knowing heaven by philosophy and knowledge and intellect and Greek uh, verbiage is a waste, right? But he is not... He's not not saying in that little line, but the kingdom of God is not in word. He is not saying the word of God is not important. Uh, he's not saying that the power of the word of God is not necessary in our lives. That is not what he is saying. So we can't say the kingdom of God is not in word, any kind of words that we read. or to see The kingdom of God is in power and then built a whole uh, religion off these uh, exhibitions of power. They have to go hand in hand, right? I say this because we have shown at length how important the Word of God is uh, in communicating the light and truth and love of God to every Christian. Paul established the interpretation of this verse here in chapter 4 uh, when he said back in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, and my speech and my preaching, those are words, was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and power. There they're united. My words were not a demonstration of great philosophical understanding. My words were presented uh, as a demonstration of spirit and power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, again, not to exclude the words, but to make sure that the words that are shared are having the power to create a force in people's lives. The philosophies of man and wisdoms of men will not create a force that will last. And that's how we have to see it. So, that's the first point to understand when we read this short line, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. It comes hand in hand with the word of God. The word he's talking about there contextually are their philosophical words. Uh, then he says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also. So when we read that, it's not in word only, but also, meaning the word is there, in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance as you know what manner of men you were among you for your sake. The second point is we must remember that Paul and the other apostles, as well as the Lord himself, came and they spoke words that came with power. All right? Uh, it was the power that was manifested through Jesus and his apostles that the people knew their message was true. When Jesus says... I uh, came from above, you came from beneath, I came from above, I'll return. When he said that, the people could say, well, those are great words, but we don't know. But when he could say that and then give sight to somebody born blind, we had power connected to his words and the truth is established. 
Jesus was prophesied and the apostles were prophesied as coming with power. And this is one of the examples of that power in the New Testament. They did miracles. All right? So, um, these teachers, again, spouting philosophies. Paul said, I'm not going to come and test your philosophies. I just want to see what power comes with your words. Let's see what really is happening. Paul, Paul is probably saying, maybe behind the scenes or between the lines or in his mind, I will come with God as my power and do miracles among you that will back up my words. You know, I want to see what your, all your philosophies are going to produce among these people. Paul was especially called to bring forth this power and evidence as an apostle in that day. Uh, Romans 15, 19, it says, Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout Lycurium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. That passage ties signs and wonders with preaching the gospel of Christ. That's what Paul did. That's what Jesus did. They preached and they had the, the power behind their words. He adds in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Again, the signs of an apostle were wrought mightily among you in patience, in signs and wonders and deeds. That is this, one of the key signs of an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ called to do Jesus' work among those people. When we have people who say, I'm an apostle today, they should be doing the very deeds and mighty signs and wonders of an apostle then. You go on to Luke, in Acts, uh, who says in Acts 19, this is what he wrote, 1911, God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. By the hands of Paul. God did that in that day and age. And then we get a much broader explanation of it in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 3. Listen to what Paul says. Giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things, approving ourselves as ministers of God. He's talking about being an apostle here. In much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pure pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power dunamis of God, he adds in all this, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. That's his description of what it meant to be an apostle in that day. So, just because we're in Salt Lake and we deal with a lot of people who have been LDS, including those in our audience and many of you who watch at home, we got those yokels up there on North Temple, and they claim to be apostles. I don't see any of them doing any of this stuff. None of them. None of them have given their life. None of them have said they're a first-hand witness of Jesus' resurrection. And none of them seem to fit in with what these guys were doing. Now, I remember hearing uh, Dallin Oaks speak when I was LDS and saying in a big conference in Anaheim, California, you know, I just want to say there's criticism that we don't do miracles. 
I want to let you know, we miracles are done. In the sacredness of the uh, sanctity of a miracle, uh, they are done privately. Uh, and the Lord is working mightily among us as apostles. And everyone's, oh, we knew it, we knew it. But, you know, these guys are doing it outright, open, showing. So, I'm, you can see I'm passionate about that subject for some reason. So, these were specifically assigned to apostles. That's what Paul's talking about there. When we read the, these words and we read these about ourselves, that's improper too. You can't. That isn't what we are. And now, it, it, they might affect us in some of those ways, but don't take that that was given to the apostles and put it upon yourself. You don't have the ability. You weren't empowered with the dunamis by God to do the things that they were doing. So Paul is showing that the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ who drew all people to Jesus prove their apostleship by and through wonders and signs and miracles. And they had the right to, in these abilities given to them by God, to tell others, follow me as I follow Christ. That the reign of God in the church would be known through power and by what they had an authority of God on earth while they sojourned around and tried to get everybody to see that this age was coming to an end. Receive Christ now uh, before he comes to take his bride. So Peter said in his epistle about himself and the other apostles, 2 Peter 1.16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, he says, as apostles, haven't followed fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were just eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's what he says. So um, they followed in as apostles doing miracles under the uh, power, uh, exousia, and dunamis of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus show dunamis over? What did he have power over when he came to show the people that he was the Messiah as prophesied? Well, he had it over inanimate objects. His first miracle is turning water into wine. We know that one. Multiplication of bread, fishes. He had that dunamis, that power. Uh, they witnessed him having power over illnesses of every weird kind. Demons. They spoke to him, Jesus, our son of God, what do you have to do with us today? Where are you going to cast us out before the time comes? Uh, animals, Jesus rode on a donkey that had never been ridden before. I don't know anything about animals, but if a donkey has never been ridden before, I have a feeling those are hard to ride. Uh, not for Jesus. Got on the old guy's back, rode on in calmly, no bucking bronco. Uh, waves of the sea, boom. Blindness, deafness. Raising Lazarus more than three days in the grave, dead. Um, and then himself from the dead. So the faith is not just in words. We don't belong to a faith that is built on philosophy, and it's a great way to live. It is built in a power that comes from God. It that power is from God produces life. We put those things on the board last week. It's truth. It is power of love. It is power of light. It is power in word. It is his power and it fixes things 
and it heals things and it makes things better and it redeems things and it creates things here in this world. That's the power we look to be associated with our faith. So while we come here on Sunday and we get into the word big time, it's not just about the words. Are the words in your life creating more love, creating more light, empowering you to go out and speak with the words, all the things that come along with being representatives of Christ. So it fixes death. This, this power that comes with being a Christian fixes death in the world. That's why we're called salt and light. We, uh, we are preservers and we are shining light in dark places just by virtue of having Christ with us and walking about a world where other people don't have it. Um, it improves the living of other people. And it is not simply done in word alone. So the greatest power that the good news evidences and provides is the power to bring someone who is dead in their heart, dead to sin, dead to this world, and the power of God that shines in and suddenly they begin to change. They begin to grow. They begin to have a relationship with God where sin and death otherwise had a grip on them. And herein is one of the biggest distinguishing characteristics, that power to give real life that lends to faith and love in a believer that is different from most, many other faiths, most other faiths, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age, Eastern, Western philosophy, none of them provide spiritual regeneration to the point where that person is in relationship with God through Christ Jesus. They provide systems, they provide words and philosophies, great ways to live, but they don't provide that regeneration, that power to take the human heart that's dead to sin and bring it into relationship to God as evidenced by the Christian view of resurrection. None of them teach resurrection. None of them have a, uh, a God who came and died and resurrected to new life. It's that dying and resurrecting to new life that is like the picture and type for everything Christian. We die to our former ways, we live to our new ways. We die to our sinful self, we live to our holy self in Christ. We will die in our flesh, we'll be raised to new life. It's all a picture of his power. In the early church, amidst the bride of Christ at that time in that day and age, the kingdom moved by manifest exhibitions, outward expositions, uh, outward exhibitions of this power. Uh, miracles by Jesus, resurrection of Jesus, Speaking in tongues is generating language where people had no language capacity before. Uh, the miracles of the apostles, as we've just talked about, and the apostolic powers to govern and correct and lead and discern. Peter looks at one guy and he says, the guy says something to him. Hey, I'd like to buy this priesthood from you. And he it says he discerned his heart and he said, you child of Satan. You know, he, he was able to discern quickly with that. So all heavenly, all spirit-driven and led by the Holy Spirit to bring about conversion in that age. Uh, so dunamis, as I said, is the word, Greek word, for this power that's in the King James. It best means force, as in the force is with you. Uh, that's what this power of God is. It's this force. And it's especially used in the New Testament to mean miracles 
But it also means and is translated to abilities, abundance, might, strength, violence, mighty work, um, mighty deeds, miracle. I already said miracles. So Jesus uses dunamis when he said to his father, for thy kingdom, Basilia, uh, for this, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is what he's talking about. Your kingdom, God, is about this power and you have the glory forever because of it. When Jesus was touched by the woman with the issue of blood, uh, the King James says, he said, who touched me? I felt virtue go out of me. Virtue was a King James word they used, but the real, it's dunamis there. So it's really, he said, I felt some of the force leave me. I felt some of the power, the ability leave me. So we know that there's an exchange that goes on when you're involved in sharing the power of God and giving it to other people. There's a loss of that power in yourself, it seems temporarily, as you're doing those things. Um, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So without question, 1 Thessalonians 1.5 holds as true today, I believe, as it did in Paul's day when he wrote and said, For the gospel came not unto you in word only. Uh, so it did come in word but not only, but also in dunamis and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. He nails the whole matter down in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verse 16. He says that God would grant you, believers at Ephesus, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man or woman in the inner man or woman. I'm emphasizing that because that's where the power works upon us today. Jesus and the apostles prophesied for external power to show it so that they could be known as the one who was sent. We today have that power and Paul says, God, I pray that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, that you would be strengthened with dunamis by his spirit. How? Where? In the inner man or woman. That's what we're looking for. We don't need Benny Hinn on a stage slapping people's foreheads and saying here or whatever as showing that there is this power on earth. The power is working on the inner man or woman. Key to the power of God today. So where the Lord and his apostles were certainly manifesting the dunamis of God in outwardly signs and in the lives of those who were seeking the Messiah, it seems that the overall universal application of dunamis lies in its effects upon the inner person. That's where the changes are happening. That God would grant us according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with dunamis, force, ability, power, by his spirit, by the way, not by our flesh, in the inner woman or man. That's where that power is working. And I can attest to you, I, I was just having a conversation with somebody, and I know I talk about this a lot, but what motivates me to do what I do um, is, and we all have our conversion stories, but what motivates me is 
that power and its, its capacity, its ability to change the inner man. Uh, there's a test given by a noted uh, uh, psycho psychiatrist, doctor, PhD in Canada, the hair thing, you want to check it out. And it's uh, a test on psychopathy, if you're a psychopath or not. And Mary, who's known me since I was 17, and I, we read the list, and there's a scoring system to it. And we went through and talked, and what score do you think you are? What score do you think I am? And you can score up to 40 points, 40 points being the, the biggest psychopath on the face of the earth. Below 20, you're, you know, be, between 10 and 20, you're a little okay. 20 to 30, you're like, well, there's some scary things going on here. And uh, I was a 36 in my youth. And a 36. There was no game playing there. I, we weren't giving a higher score to make it seem worse. It described perfectly what I w came into this world as being. But when Christ came in, it's why I'm so sold out to him. He was able to take the worst, and I don't emphasize that for anything but fact, and gave the power from my heart to start operating the way he would. That is the power of God in this gospel. I was LDS. They had the words. They had the philosophy. They had the books. They had seminary I taught. They had the bishopric. But I was a psychopath hiding behind a white shirt and tie, operating as a religious person. I, I didn't, he didn't come in because I let him, he came in, he did the work without my having to do it outwardly, and he took one very, very, very bad man from birth, psychologically, emotionally, to becoming somebody who uh, is able to let him work. That's all it is. It's him working. And anyone who knows me personally knows that when he's not working, that guy is still there. He's still there in full force if I say, no more of you, Jesus. So there's that relationship that we have, that partnership with God calling to say, I want to come in and give you the power I have to change. And it's hard. You don't have to be a psychopath. You can be perfect in everywhere, every way and just be a little mean gossip. And if you don't have the power of God to come in, that probably won't change. And you'll die being that little mean gossip, having lived perfectly in every other way. It's not enough. It doesn't work that way with God. He wants the power in your life. And the thing that's interesting, I'll just throw this in for whatever it's worth. On our show, I believe that God uses the, some elements of my psychopathy to face and confront the stuff that goes on because I don't care. I don't care what people think. I don't care if the pastors get mad. I don't care about any of it. That's the psychotic part of me. He says, okay, that's what you are. I'm going to use that in what you do. Now, you can't go that route, but those traits are always going to kind of be there, you know? And so I see that work. 
and, and, and I'm wrong a lot, and there's problems with it and everything else, just like with all of us, but he works with it. He redeems. He empowers. He brings the darkness into the light, and he uses whatever we are and whatever we have been to his glory. It's all to his glory to bring people into his kingdom, and he does it by his power, not words alone, not words alone. So we have a question. Some suggest that the principles of this power should be on earth today like they were in the New Testament. Uh, it's a big question. Should we be healing people who are blind, who have died, three days dead, etc., etc., etc.? There is a great contingency of Christians who say, yes, we should. And if we're not, you're not faithful enough. I think we can see from what we've said so far that Jesus and his apostles were specially called for that time to evidence what they did and that the real miracle and power in the church today is in the heart. I believe in miracles, but I, I just don't believe they're the, of the same nature. You've heard the story. I went to a, a, a faith healing seminar where there was a guy who went around and he claimed to be able to heal by faith. He got some poor guy up who had a bad leg and he did some thing with him, and the guy was limping around, and the guy was calling it healed. I couldn't take it. I just said, raise my hand. The audience, they're all listening. I said, I want to know of one person you've healed who was born blind. Oh, we have them. I said, I want to see the evidence. Oh, I can give it to you. And it was big back and forth. I said, I don't believe you. I want to see somebody who was born with a disease that they can't walk. Uh, their legs are missing or something where they cannot be healed by anything but a supernatural power, I want to see all your claims work on them. Oh, we've done them. I've got... We went on for two months back and forth. In the end, he couldn't provide anything. He was a liar. Because we've established what's happened here and say it has to happen now. The miracle is inward. On the inward man, the inward woman. That's the dunamis that we're looking for now. Because the external had a purpose in place at that time. Tried to get that right. It's not to say God can't do miraculous things. Of course he does. But I personally see his hand especially in that area. In any case, Paul wrote to boasters of words and he said, But I will come to you shortly if the Lord will, and I will know not the speech of them that are puffed up, but the power. And isn't that the real test of legitimacy of, of religious profession? Um, does it possess the actual power to, for someone to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man? And uh, that was one way that I was able to see the difference between being part of a great religion, Mormonism, great religion. Told my mom the other day, best religion on the face of the earth. Mom, great religion. Didn't have the power to change my heart. Just gave me the instructions on what to do. But it's that power that we're looking for. So the spirit of the inner man needs to change. That's where the miracle is. So I submit to you here and now that while God is a God of miracles, most of his operations in the world are not giving people born blind with sight or people who are born lame with legs, unless it's through modern medicine. Sometimes maybe it happens by his will, I don't know, but... It's the kingdom of changed hearts. 
The chapter ends with Paul asking a question, which in the King James says, What will you? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? So what he's asking is, is if you had your druthers, if you had your wish, how would you want me to come to you? Do you want me to come to you with a rod? Or do you want me to come to you in love and in the spirit of weakness? And what I believe Paul is saying there is, this is in your hands, you guys. You have claimed Christ. You've divided. Do you want me to come with a rod in my hand and start ripping everybody? Or do you want me to come in the spirit of love and, and, and forgiveness and all the things that the spirit is? It's up to you what you do. I'm coming, but when I do, understand I'm going to come with one or the other. Chapter 5 next week. Questions, comments. Insights. Don't be shy. Thanks, brother. My name is Ray. Sean, I enjoyed your comments today. Thanks. And I'm a believer in miracles. I don't worry about walking on water or changing fish or bread or healing the sick. The miracle that I believe in is the atonement of our Savior, mm. overcoming our sin. Mm. And that is a miracle that continues mm. every day. Thank you. Love it. Thank you so much. Well put. Anything else? All right. Let's pray and get on out. Lord, we, uh, we do rejoice and marvel at the miracle of what our brother Ray just shared. Yeah, we pray that we will walk out of here just renewed in that fact. Even though it was so long ago, we trust in it today. We'll trust in it tomorrow. And we pray your strength for all we know, everyone we know, to trust in that fact that you came and you gave your life, you atoned for the sins of this world, you reconciled this fallen world to your Father. And we pray that we will understand that with greater depth and clarity as the years go on. We pray for Annette, continued cancer treatments, for David, recovery from colon cancer, Diana, heart and bone healing, Gracie, continue healing from her cancer. Liz, recovery from a knee replacement. George, broken foot, rheumatoid arthritis. Pray for Leon in prison. We pray for our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids and our neighbors and our parents and the people in our lives who we want to show the power of you in our hearts. We don't always know how. We want to talk about that atonement, propitiation of Christ Jesus for our sin. But we do it through your power, not our own. So guide us and lead us and help us to exit here now, live our Christian faith according to your spirit and power, and trust and rest in you that you have what you start in us, you will finish. And we do trust and know that. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before the music, we have, uh, apparently, we have the distribution of cookies from the Knubles, from Grace. You got the cookies here. So, uh, however, however, please take bagels before cookies.
I'll put on a Girl Scout uniform if it will get you to take bagels. All right. Uh, music and more. Thanks, brother. Oh, Christ is the end of the